0: Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. Thank you, guys. I started this morning, I want to pick up kind of with some things we are talking about. This is the time in which we celebrate the 4th of July. This is that birthday time for the nation and talk this morning about a guy named Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration, and how he talked about blessings, some of the greatest blessings are things we often take for granted. And there's probably no people on the face of the earth that have more blessings they take for granted than what we have here in the United States. And so the various blessings that we have here, we look this morning at the fact that we are now celebrating 247 birthdays as a nation. Nobody else has come close to that. The average for any nation over the course of history is 17 years. So we're sitting at 247, but we're not real appreciative of that because we're just used to it. This is what happens every year. So when you look back at that, Alexei de Tollville is the guy who first gave us the name American exceptionalism. America so America's the exception. Not, they're not the rule. They're not like everybody else. They're a little different. And so this morning, we looked at some of the principles that caused that. But tonight, I want to look at some of the people who caused that. So when you look at American Exceptionalism... Here we are with something the rest of the world wishes they'd have, and a good question to ask is, who are the leaders responsible for this? And maybe it's fair to go back and say, well, how about those who led in the creation of these documents that have guided us for two and a half centuries? How, how about people like George Washington, Constitutional Convention, father of the country? How about folks like John Hancock, big part of the Declaration? Folks like John Adams, who was part of the Bill of Rights as, as well as Declaration Constitution? And, and those are all good names. Here's what I find interesting. In 1818, John Adams received a letter. Now, 1818, this is 42 years after he signed the Declaration of Independence, so he is an old man. 42 years after having signed that, he got this letter in 1818 from Hezekiah Niles. Hezekiah Niles was a young man. We could call him a millennial of that generation because he was younger. He grew up, he was born in the American Revolution. He didn't see any of the stuff that led up to it, what was going on. But he's writing a history book. And he wrote Old Man Adams. And the history book he did came out in 1822. It's called Principles and Acts of the American Revolution. It's a really good history book. But he wrote Old Man Adams and said, you know, I wasn't there for that. I'm writing a history book about it, but I wasn't there for it, and you were, and I'd really like to ask you some questions. And so he asked some questions, and the principal question he said was, who's responsible, where'd you get your ideas? I mean, you guys came up with something that's so different from everywhere else. Where'd you get those ideas? And that's a brilliant question. Where did you get those ideas? And John Adams said, well, if you want to know where he got the ideas, he said, right up top, I'd put the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And, of course, there's the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew, and and you've got the Reverend George Whitfield. Oh, don't forget the Reverend Charles Johnson. He starts going through and listening to preachers. Now, we might have heard of George Whitfield, but the chances that we know any of these other preachers at all, slim to none. We don't study preachers today in history. We don't study Christian leaders, per se. And not only do we not study, we don't study pastors, whether they're white or black. I mean, who in the world is Richard Allen, or who's Absalom Jones, or who's... John Morant or Lemuel Haynes or who's Harry Hoosier? We don't know. These are new names for us. Let me just take Harry Hoosier for a minute. Harry Hoosier is part of the Great Awakenings, And the Great Awakenings. you think of, well, that's George Whitfield and that's John and Charles Wesley and that's all these great names. And they had massive crowds. They would get 10, 20, 30,000 people in a cow pasture and they would preach to them outdoors. Just amazing stuff. And one of those guys was Francis Asbury. And Francis Asbury... He talked about the fact, he said, well, you know, I've got large crowds. He said, but Harry draws larger crowds than we do. Wow, that guy has bigger crowds than the other guys. And Benjamin Rush, he went to his meetings and Benjamin Rush said, he's the greatest orator I have ever heard. Benjamin, you're running around with Patrick Henry and all those other great... And he said, no, no, no. Harry is the greatest orator I've ever heard. Now, Harry's ministry was largely to what we would call blue-collar folk. They were the woodsmen, the frontiers, the explorers. They were rough and tumble guys. They fought a lot. They cussed a lot. They drank a lot. And they were the guys who opened up as we started moving west. But as they would get converted, their behavior would change. And they weren't the same. And They didn't drink as much or cuss as much or fight as much. And so Harry's ministry was largely along the East Coast. It wasn't out in, in the wilderness areas. on the East Coast. And he preached in Philadelphia and Delaware and Jersey, et cetera. But as America started moving west, 1806, 1807, 1808, we're, we're moving west. All these frontier guys are going west with America. And, and they want to be out there. This is what they do. This is what they love is pioneering new ground. So as they go west, these explorers get out there and a bunch of Harry's converts come as well. And these other woodsmen, these other trappers, they look at Harry's guys and say man, those guys sure act different. What's up with them? The answer was they're a bunch of those Hoosiers. It was the Indian Air Territory. Oh, the Hoosier State. I wonder how many people in Indiana know that they've been named after black evangelist. Probably not. Now, it might seem that if you had a state named after you, you might show up in somebody's history book somewhere. We don't hear anything about that at all. I mean, Harry Hoosier's completely gone. What we hear today is, oh, you know, the American founding, all a bunch of white guys. Oh, they're right. That is a bunch of white guys. These are the guys that we celebrate, Fourth of July, signing the Declaration. And by the way, this painting was done in 1821. It was not done in 1776. It's 45 years after they, they did this. These guys look awful young there to be 45 years later. So if they paint this in 1821, how'd they know what the guys looked like? Because we didn't have cameras back then. There wasn't any way of of doing a flashback to 1770. Here's the deal. If you in America did something very significant, If, if you were a governor, if you signed the Declaration of the Constitution, if you were a great general, if you're a great preacher, They did a portrait of you. They did a painting. If you were really significant, you got a painting. And so what happened, 1821, when John Trumbull did this painting, he collected all the portraits of these guys done decades earlier, got them all together, and he painted this. Now, this actual painting hangs in the capitals. It's 20 feet wide. It's 14 feet high. It's like a life-size painting of these guys. So he used those portraits, and that's how we know what they look like because they had paintings done when they were much younger, when they were significant. Yeah, but you know what? We also have paintings of Harry Hoosier. Now, how did we get a painting of Harry Hoosier? Because he was really significant. We did paintings of significant people back then. And that's the interesting thing, is we have so many paintings of so many black folks that we just don't even know today, have no clue who these guys are, and it's not because they didn't do significant stuff. That's why they were painted. Now, you know, I, I can take you over here. Up top is Richard Allen, and, and there's Benjamin Banneker on the right side. Jack Sisson on the bottom right, kind of like an early SEAL team guy. John Chavez to the left, coming up. You see Harry. Who's your above that? Is Peter Salem? And I just keep going. They're painted because they did significant things in American history. As a matter of fact, take this guy on the bottom left here. See the guy on the horseback right there? That guy is named Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell is out of New Hampshire. Now you know about the. Midnight ride that Paul Revere made in Massachusetts. Well, Wentworth Cheswell made the same ride in New Hampshire. He went around New Hampshire saying, guys, get up. The British are coming to arms, to arms. And so he made that same ride. And Wentworth Cheswell was an elected official. He was elected in New Jersey or New Hampshire in, in 1768. This is one of the documents we have of him. He's a judge at this point in time. But it's interesting that he not only was elected to office in 1768, he was reelected to office for 49 years and held eight different political positions. Now, that's a black guy being elected in a white town. What's all this racism? See, we have many, many guys. See, the reason he's painted, we know what he did because he's such a significant hero, except in today's textbooks. It's not that we don't have great heroes, we just don't study them today at all. And so when you look at a guy like Wentworth Cheswell, as I mentioned this morning, he wasn't the first black man elected in America. Way back in 1641, Matthias Azusa was elected in a white community in Maryland, became part of the state legislature in 1641. Now, also, by 1876, we had a thousand blacks elected to office in America. As I mentioned this morning, if you take a nation like Great Britain, which it seemed to be really good on race, they did not elect their first black person to office until 1987. And with Russia, it was 2010. And we've been doing this since 1641, and somehow we're the bad guys in all this discussion on race. No, we just don't know our own history is the big problem we have. Now, there's been bad stuff happen, and there's been bad stuff with every single nation because there's people in every nation. And so there's always bad stuff. That's why everybody needs a Savior, and it's just across the board. But America got out of its bad stuff faster than other nations did by a long shot because of the Bible leaders we had. So... When you look at what's happened with, with guys like this, let me take some some others because I was talking about preachers and, and this is you know who, who John Adams pointed to. Let's go to a guy like John Morant. John Morant, really cool guy. When he was 12 years old, he was up in New York. And by the way, this will change your outlook on stuff. Do you know that in school back then, we didn't go past the age of 13? When you were 13, you graduated. At 13, you either got a career or you went to college because you're done with school at 13. And we have ex exams, and it was that way up through the 1920s. She didn't go to school past eighth grade. We have ex exams up in the 1920s, eighth grade ex exams like out of Colorado, and Nebraska, Oklahoma. We love giving these to, to college kids because they can't get 20% of the questions right on those eighth grade kids. It's really rigorous stuff. And so what happened, John, he was 12 years old. His family said, you got to get a job. He was living in New York. They sent him down to South Carolina. When he got to South Carolina, the family there said, get a job. He said, yeah, I want to be a musician. They said, that's not a job. So he said, well, I want to be a musician. Well, it turns out he was quite a child prodigy. He became the most famous person on violin and horn there in Charleston area. And if you had a gig going in Charleston, if you had some kind of gathering, he's the guy you hired to play. And he's really good. And so one day, he and a friend were going to perform at, at a gathering that was there and he he said that as he was walking by a meeting house which is a church he said he had a he heard a crazy man hallooing there well the crazy man happened to be george whitfield and he was preaching inside the service and it was all packed and the buddy that was with john bumped him and said hey let's go inside and break up the meeting so they went inside and when they got inside the friend bumped john and said hey why don't you pull your horn out and blow it just just really break up the meeting john said good idea so he opens it gets the horn out he gets ready to blow the horn John said in his own writings, he said that as soon as I started to blow the horn, he said, Whitfield whirled and pointed directly at me and said, prepare to meet thy God. He said, when Whitfield said that, he said, I, fall, I fell over senseless, dropped the horn, I just hit the ground. He said, I couldn't move, I just laid there. People came and tried to get me up and they couldn't get me up and I just laid there and I couldn't move and they couldn't get me up. He said that they just left me there for the rest of the service. So he heard Whitfield <laughs> preaching everything. So he gets all the sermon of Whitfield just, just laying there. And so after the service is over, which two hours is about what a service runs back then, after service is over, Whitfield comes over and looks at him and said, well, young man, the Lord Jesus has got thee at last. I mean, he's captive audience. He's not going anywhere. He says, I'm leaving town. I would love to speak to you, but I'm gonna send one of my associates to speak with you. So they took John, picked up John, took him home, They got him home, they called for medical help because he still couldn't move. And so the doctors got their prescribed stuff, it didn't help. They had him on his bed, and so this minister, friend of Whitfield's comes in later and says, let me pray for you. And so he prayed for, for John, and then he asked, how do you feel? John felt worse after the prayer. He said, I feel terrible. He says, let me pray again. No. And he says, after he prayed the second time, he said, I felt even worse. He said, and then he said a third time, let me pray again. And John, what are you trying to do, kill me? I mean, this is getting worse every time. He said, but after the guy prayed for him the third time, something different happened. He said he felt this warm feeling on the inside, and he could start moving again, and he's just totally different. Well, it ends up he becomes a Christian. He gets converted, becomes a Christian. And he has a love for the Bible. He just gets in the Bible and starts reading it and reading it and reading it. He can't get enough of it, can't get it down fast enough. And his family doesn't like it. Family did not like him becoming a Christian at all, didn't like the fact he was reading the Bible. And so they began to really persecute him. In his writings, he said, they called me everything except that which was good. And so after weeks of that, he decides, I've had enough. I'm leaving the family. I'm going to go somewhere else. And so he grabbed his Bible and he went out in the woods. And out in the woods, he just kind of walking around disconsolate, kind of depressed. And he bumps into an Indian friend that he had. And this Indian friend was out hunting in the woods, the Cherokee friend. And he says, Hey, uh, I'm hunting out here. Just stay with me if you want to. And so they spent about six weeks hunting in the woods. At the end of the sixth week, the Cherokee said, I've got to go back to my village. It's time for me to get back. Uh, He said, You don't have any place to go. Why don't you just come with me to the village? And John looked at him and said, no, it's a Cherokee law that any outsider that walks into the village will be killed on the spot. He said, I'm not going to walk in. And the brave said, well, I'll, I'll speak for you. It's okay. So they go to the village. And as John walks into the village, the chief of the village points at him and says, you're not a Cherokee. And he ordered the braves to fall on him and kill him. And the, the brave went to speak for John and they hauled the brave off so he couldn't speak. So John says he had this trial. He said the king, which was the chief, went to, had the trial. They went through it he was sentenced to, to death for violating Cherokee law. So they put him over in a hut with a guard on the outside. He had had the chief, and the chief had, uh, uh, had a, a, a judge that ran the, the trial, and then there was an executioner, and now he's being guarded in a hut by, by the, the guy that's going to deliver him to the executioner. And so John was in there, and he's 13 years old. He said, I'm about to die. This, and the executioner told him exactly how it's going to die. I'm not going to tell you what he said. It's extremely graphic. It is very disturbing. But this is what the young 13-year-old boy is thinking about. I'm about to die. and I'm going to die in a horrible way. And he said, but then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, now, wait a minute. That means I got to go see Jesus. Hey, that's going to be really good. So he was in that hut by himself at night. And he started just praying and praising, singing, talking to Jesus, praying. And the guard opened the door and ran in and said, who are you talking to? He said, I'm talking to Jesus. Guard looked around, there's nobody in here. I'm talking to Jesus. Well, he ends up leading the guard to Christ. So the guard gets saved. And then the guard went and got the executioner. The executioner came back and said, what are you doing? He said, well, this is what happened. He leads the executioner to Christ. He was 13 years old. The executioner wouldn't get the judge. The judge came back what, he leads the judge to Christ. The judge says, I think I can get the chief to change the sentence. So he took him to the chief and the chief had a young daughter and the young daughter saw his Bible and instantly ran for the Bible, grabbed it, pulled it up close to her heart and held it up to her ear and just, just kept. And so the chief said, you've cast a smell, spell on my daughter. You get that spell off her now, or I'm going to chop you to pieces right here in front of me. And it ends up that she gets saved and the chief gets saved. So after they get saved, the chief says, you know, what you've shared with us needs to go to all the other tribes. He said, And I'm going to send you to those tribes, but if I send you there, they're going to try to kill you the same way that we tried to kill you because you violate all these Cherokee laws by showing up. He says, I'm going to take my personal bodyguard, which is the 50 toughest Braves in his camp. He said, that's going to be your bodyguard, and I'm going to send them with you, and they'll protect you, and you just go from village to village and share the gospel from village to village. And so he did. So over that period of time, for the next year and a half, he went not only from the Cherokees, but he went to the Kattasar tribe, the Housar tribe, the Creek tribe. He's 14 years old. He's the first black American to successfully share the gospel of the Native Americans. So at the end of 14 years, he goes back home to his family. They get reconciled. He goes on to be part of the American War for Independence, etc. But he has a book. And this book, you can just download offline. It's a free book. Uh, it is the second. It is one of the top two best best-selling black narratives of that entire era. Everybody knew this story. Everybody knew about this guy except today. We know nothing about him. And the reason we know is there, we got paintings back there. We got his books. It's it's all there. So it's another one that's gotten away from us. And in the same way, also the Reverend Lemuel Haynes. Lemuel Haynes is the first black man to have a degree of higher education in America. Uh, It's interesting. He was a preacher in New York and in Massachusetts and Vermont, several different states. He pastored for 50 years. And this is one of the paintings back from 1790 when he was pastoring. Look at the congregation. Notice anything? Oh, well, it's a white congregation. Black pastor, white congregation, yeah, that's what happened. He pastored white churches all over New England, and in addition to all that, in the American War for Independence, he had been a Minuteman. He's one of the famous Minutemen who fought in the war, and he fought directly under George Washington, so in his churches, Washington's birthday, he would preach a sermon about George Washington, his commander-in-chief with whom he served in the Revolution. Huge patriotic guy, loved Washington, loved what, what happened with American independence, and in addition to that, he's the first black man to have any type of sermon published. So he has a sermon published, he has a number of sermons published. And back in that day, it was not typical that people would do what I'm doing now, what we're used to, and that's just speaking to you. They would spend all week writing out a sermon, and then they would read you the sermon on Sunday. And so if you know the, the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God with Jonathan uh, Edwards, who read that, that sermon about sin, and people in the church thought they were dropping into hell, they saw it open before, and they're grabbing pillars and pews. He never saw it. He was nearsighted and he had the sermon up here and he never saw all the drama that was going in the crowd. So people read their sermons, well, what you have with Lemuel Haynes, Lemuel Haynes, he wrote 5,500 sermons. That's a lot of sermons to deliver, a lot of sermons to write, and he wrote them all out, so it's like, reading, it's like writing 5,500 small books, but then he would also just give, he kind of broke the mold and started giving extemporary sermons where he would just speak. So in extemporary sermons, he had memorized the Bible, and so when he would just give a sermon, he would quote 20 or 30 verses right off the top of his head, just as part of the, the sermon. The guy knew the Bible front and back. It's amazing to see what he did And one of the fun things that happened with him to show how well he knew the Bible was when Andrew Jackson got elected president. Now, Jackson is a really good soldier. He's a really bad president. He had a lot of problems. President, not a good guy. Soldier, very good guy. But when Andrew Jackson got elect- elected president, Lemuel Haynes walked into a hotel and they were having a big celebration party off the side for the election of Andrew Jackson, a bunch of his supporters. And they saw Lemuel come in and say, hey, come on over, celebrate the victory. And so they pulled Lemuel into it. Lemuel is not happy at all. He does not like Jackson, not even a little bit does he like Jackson. And so they thought he did. They thought he was there for the celebration. And they, they said, hey, give a toast to President Jackson, new President Jackson. So Lemuel Haynes gave a toast to President Jackson. And he took the glass, he held it up, and he said, Psalm 109, 8. And he didn't drink a toast, he just sat down and walked out. And they all, cheer, yay, he toasted the president. Somebody got around to looking up the verse after he left. The verse said, let his days be few and let another take his office. (laughs) So... This is the kind of folks that we've got. They're really good. We know a whole lot about them. And again, we've got pictures of them from back then. But they've all disappeared. So going back to John Adams, when he's talking about all these preachers, you know, historians have documented that if you look at the Declaration of Independence, every single right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. So if you want to challenge pull the declaration out and read it this week, 4th of July week, read it as a list of sermon topics because that's the stuff we were covering in sermons at that point in time. That's where people got their thinking. That's where John Adams said, well, I got these from these preachers. I mean, this is what we were doing. We were very relevant in applying the Bible to every aspect of life. Um, There is... A church historian, Bishop Charles Galloway, in 1892, he went back and looked at all the preachers from that early era. He looked at the role of the church that early era. He looked at what Christians were doing. And this is the way he described them, looking back into the founding of America, what we celebrate this week, looking back. And he described them in 1892. This is what he said. He said, mighty men they were, men of iron nerve and strong hand and unblenched cheek and heart of flame. He said, God needed not reeds shaken by the wind, nor men clothed in soft raiment. He needed heroes of hardihood and lofty courage. And such were the sons of the mighty who responded to the divine call. These were guys that had a lot of backbone. And they stood, and they stood firm, and they stood clear. And there's a lot we can point to with that. If you take the first four battles of the American War for Independence, top right is Lexington, top left is North Bridge of Concord, bottom left is Road to Boston, and bottom right is Bunker Hill, Battle of Bunker Hill. You take those battles. It's interesting that in the first battle, the Battle of Lexington, 700 British come to town. They're after the people's arms and ammunition and and storehouses. And 73, we're told in our textbooks that 73 courageous uh, Americans went out there to face the 700 British. Well, that's not quite the story. And, And by the way, let me just point out that in that period of time, everybody's got a single shot musket. So it would not have mattered if we'd had SEAL Team 6 on, on our side. We still would have lost that battle. When you've got 700 guys firing at 73 guys, and everybody's just got one bullet at a time, and it takes you, you only shoot two to four times a minute. It takes you from 15 to 30 seconds to reload. It's a big advantage. Well, what happened was it wasn't 73, quote, Americans that went out it was Reverend Jonas Clark who took his church out and said, hey, defend the town. Do not let the British violate our rights. They were led out by Captain John Parker, who was the deacon of the church. He had been organizing them and helping them understand. He said, Pastor Clark's been telling us that there's just wars and unjust wars. And he went through biblically. He said, now, what we're facing here is it will not be a just war if we start it you have to let them fire first. And so if you ever go to Lexington Green, you'll see the, the statue of John Parker, but the famous quote says, don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. That's what Pastor Clark had been preaching in his sermons. So Deacon, Deacon Parker takes the 73 guys out. They line them up and they stand there and say, we're, we're just not going to let you take our stuff. It's just not going to happen. That's when the British fired And that's when 18 Americans hit the ground that morning because we're not firing back till after they've started something. So 18 Americans hit the ground, no British hit the ground. Well, about three hours later, you have the battle at North Bridge at Concord because this is where the British were headed was to Concord. But when they get to North Bridge, they find 400 guys out there meeting them, except it wasn't 400 guys. It's Reverend William Emerson who led the guys from his church out there to defend the town. So you're not going to the town. You're not going to pillage the town. That's just not going to happen. And they said, by the way... Did, did we hear that you shot at our brethren over at Lexington? Has the war started? Is this game on? And so at that point is where we fired the first shots. So that's where two British hit the ground and they said, this is not good. We just faced 73 guys. We have 700, that was okay. We faced 400, we have 700, but the trajectory is going the wrong way. If they keep showing up, we're gonna have serious problems. So the British turned around, did a fast march back to Charleston outside of Boston, about 16 miles going back, And what they feared came upon them. It's what Job says, Job 125, that which I feared has come upon me. As they went back, that's what we call the road to Boston Battle. There were 4,500 Americans lining the road on both sides as the British went back. Where'd they come from? Reverend Payson Phillips brought his church out. Reverend Benjamin Bosch brought his church. It was congregations defending. Said, so you will not do this. This is what we were teaching at that point in time. All these biblical aspects of how this works. God is very familiar with government. That's his institution. He's very familiar with all the things that were going on. And then the the fourth battle here, the Battle of Bunker Hill, Reverend Joseph Willard said, I've got two companies here at the church. We'll form two companies, go over to Bunker Hill. We'll join the rest of the churches, defend Boston. And that's what the battle of Bunker Hill was. So if you look even at the first four battles that we have, it literally was led by churches. It was churches being the ones to save the community, to defend the community, to stand up for the rights. And that's the way we've done it. So when you look back at these signers of the Declaration, then we go to the signers of the Constitution. So this is some 11 years later, they have come up with documents that again, 247 years? That's unbelievable. Where'd they get their ideas? Because no other nation has come up with ideas we came up with. where'd they come from? That was a question asked by political science professors at the University of Houston. They said, where did they come up with their ideas? Because it wasn't being done in France, it wasn't being done in Spain or Portugal or Italy or where'd these guys come up with ideas? Because nobody else was copying them at that time. And so they decided that if they could read the writings of the founding era and see who the founders quoted, they would know where their ideas came from. That's a brilliant thing. If I followed you around all day with a smart device and at the end of the day went back and heard who you quoted, I I would know who's important to you by who you're quoting throughout the day. So what they did was they took 15,000 writings out of the founding era. They went through those 15,000 writings and in those writings, they look for quotes. Now, the report I'm telling you about came out as a book. It's a great book to have and read. It's called The Origin of American Constitutionalism. Where did our Constitution come from? What was the origin? What were the ideas? And so what they did was they went through the 15,000 writings. They found 3,154 direct quotes in those writings. And they took every quote back to its original source. It took them 10 years to do the research. At the end of 10 years, they took it all the way back and said, well, we now know where the ideas came from. They said, in that founding era, the number one most cited individual was Baron Charles Montesquieu. Now, Baron Charles Montesquieu was a French philosopher. He's a Christian. He wrote a two-volume set called The Spirit of the Laws in 1750. This is where we get a lot of the concept of separation of powers and checks and balances. Three branches is nothing new. That goes back to Isaiah 33, the Bible says three branches. What happened was the checks and balances stuff, this is what came out and several other passages that had not been considered. Governments back then had branches. They didn't have checks and balances. Well, America came up with that, and this is the guy we point to for a lot of that. So he's the number one most cited individual, 8.3% of all of those quotes. The number two most cited individual is Judge William Blackstone. He did a four-volume commentaries on the laws, and as a matter of fact, Jefferson said that Americans read, black, American attorneys especially read Blackstones the same way that Muslims read the Koran. So that's the second most cited source. The third most cited source is John Locke. He's a philosopher from Great Britain. He wrote, two volume, he wrote a, a book called The Spirit of Laws. The, the, excuse me. He wrote a book called The Two Treatises of Government. And the guys who wrote the Declaration, Richard Henry Lee is the guy in Congress who said we should have a declaration. He signed the Declaration. Richard Henry, Richard Henry Lee said, quote, we copied the Declaration out of Locke's Two Treatises of Government. That's interesting. So... Those are the three most cited individuals. The single most cited source was the Bible. 34% of all of their political quotes came out of the Bible. 34%, that's four times more often than Montesquieu, four times more often than Blackstone, 12 times more often than Locke. And by the way, that book by John Locke, The Two Treatises of Government, it's less than four inches thick. It is less than 400 pages. It's less than an inch thick. It's less than 400 pages long. And John Locke references the Bible over 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. Now, if we put our hands, heads together and said, let's name all the Bible verses we know in government, maybe we come up with a dozen. We don't come up with 1,500. And that's what is in that book. So this is the source of the ideas that made us so different. Where do we get these sources again? It goes back to this is what we've been taught in the pulpit. So once we get the Constitution done... We now have to get the Constitution ratified. And getting the Constitution ratified, um, you've got to send it to the states. So if you're going to ratify the Constitution, where do you send it to? Send it to the state capitol, all the 13 states. And that's not what happened. If you're in Connecticut, if you're in Massachusetts, if you're in North Carolina, the ratification conventions to ratify the U.S. Constitution were held in churches. That's where we gathered to ratify the Constitution. Yeah. And then in each state, you also had to choose delegates to ratify the constitution. It's not the state legislature. You choose delegates from across the state, the people elect them. And 44 of those delegates were preachers. They were ministers of the gospel. I mean, this is, this is where we get our documents. This is where it goes back. This is not disputed. It's just not known. Uh, you know, why, why didn't we teach critical race theory 30 years ago? because we still knew too many of our heroes. We still knew too much of what was going on. But we don't now, so we can teach all sorts of stuff now. So this is where the, the stuff happened. And once we get the Constitution in place, the next thing we do is we add a Bill of Rights. And if you look at that Bill of Rights, this is what gives us those inalienable rights we talked about this morning, 14, 15 different inalienable rights in the Bill of Rights. There's only two signatures at the bottom of the Bill of Rights. Now, one of them is John Adams, Vice President of the United States, the other is Frederick Augustus, oh, he's the Reverend Frederick, he's a pastor, he's a pastor from New York, he was a Speaker of the House of Representatives, and it's amazing how many pastors served in that first Congress that gave us the Bill of Rights. These guys gave us the First Amendment because it guaranteed our free exercise of religion. It says absolutely nothing about separation of church and state. Look it up, find it. It's not even there. So we've been told separation is what they wanted. What they wanted is free exercise of religion. I mentioned this morning that is turning around. Uh, In the last 60 years, of religious liberty cases. I told you we've been involved in 13 cases. Usually, for the last 50 years, we win a religious liberty case every eight to 10 years. In the last... Four years, we've won 13 religious liberty cases in the Supreme Court. We won two on Thursday and Friday this week that are massive. The media's not talking about it. Things are so different now from what they have been. The court has said, you know, we, the court said we got it wrong in 7,300 previous anti religious decisions. We're now changing back to where it was. We, that's why in Texas right now, we're passing a bill in Texas to put the Ten Commandments on every public school classroom in the state of Texas. It's, The commissioner of education in Oklahoma is working to put prayer back in schools in Oklahoma. I mean, the whole ball game has changed. It's just, now, it's not easy. We're going to have to fight to get back in. They've already told us they're going to sue every, the atheists are going to sue every time we do this. Great. But we now have dozen Supreme Court decisions on our side. Sue away because the tide has turned. If. We get engaged, and we, if we get aggressive, and we push on this stuff. the whole The whole ball game is different now. The, it's all on our side if we'll be aggressive with it. So, all of this to say that when you look at what happened back there, John Adams summarized it: "said Our pulpits have thundered, and when you look at the sermons from back there, there is no question about them. They addressed relevancy in a way that we hardly think of today." I want to take you, we have thousands of these old sermons. I'll just show you some of them. This is a sermon from 1755. This is by the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, one of the guys that John Adams mentioned. It's a discourse or sermon on Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4, occasioned by the earthquakes in November 1755. What is that? Boston didn't have earthquakes. They did then, and it was a whopper. And so what's happening is everybody's talking about the earthquake. Well, our belief was whatever people are talking about, let's show how the Bible applies to that. So he did a sermon showing what the Bible says about earthquakes and what you can learn from that lesson. What all of that was what he covered, and it's what people are inquiring about because they're thinking about this big issue. And you'll see that what we did is whatever was in the news, we took and said, "Here's what the Bible says about that." We made the Bible relevant to every aspect of life. So we have so many sermons on natural disasters, floods, and fires, and earthquakes, and tornadoes, and whatever. Uh, This is a sermon. Comets at the bottom, two sermons occasioned by the late blazing stars. Really? Sermons on comets? Oh, yeah. Astronomy was a big topic. There are so many sermons on discovery of new planets and solar eclipses and lunar eclipses and and comets and whatever. And you'll find that the the early astronomers, whether it's Kepler or Copernicus, whoever, they were theologians. It was the theologians who were so good on astronomy. That's where the early field came from was theologians. You find the sermon, The Infirmities and Comforts of Old Age, Probably not a super popular topic, but everybody's got to deal with this. So we dealt with aging sermons. This is a sermon on religion and patriotism, the constituents of a good soldier. It's a deployment sermon. War is always part of any nation's legacy in history, and you have to deal with it. And we had lots and lots of sermons. Because boy, are there a lot of warriors in the Bible. Hebrews 11, our faith hall of fame, is filled with a lot of warriors. So God has a lot to say on war and warriors. This is a sermon relation of the medical profession to the ministry, a sermon delivered in West Church, Boston, 1854. Health care? What the Bible say about health care? Let me take you back to Abraham. If you remember Abraham, we're introduced to him in Genesis 11. And then remember Abraham had his sons, Isaac and Jacob. And from Jacob, he has Rachel and Leah. And from there come the 12 sons. This is the 12 tribes of Israel, so the 12 sons. And of all the 12 tribes of Israel, the single son who gets the most attention is Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery, and they haul him off, and everybody thinks he's dead, but Joseph still lives over here in Egypt, but nobody knows that. And so they haul Joseph off, and Joseph eventually becomes number two in the land in Egypt, but nobody back home knows that. They all think he's long gone and dead. And then that great famine sits in. And when that famine sits in, they need food and Egypt's got some, so let's go to Egypt. Eventually, Joseph gets reunited with his brothers. He's talking to them and says, hey, is dad still alive? Hadn't seen him in decades. How's dad doing? So he gets go back home and he sees dad and he says, hey, I've got a good spot in Egypt. Why don't you come with me? I'll take care of you there. So they load up all the folks and they move to Egypt. And that works out really great. They're in Egypt and things go really well for them until the Bible says a Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph. And then all the Israelites end up in slavery. And they spent the next 400 years in slavery until God said, I've had it. This is it, I'm getting them out of slavery. So he sent Charlton Heston to deliver them from slavery. <laughs> and once sent Moses to deliver them from slavery. And so Moses leads them out. You remember the 10 plagues and the, the things that happened. And he wipes out the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And he leads the people with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And he gets them out to Mount Sinai. He gets them out to the Mount. And this is where you have a transformational event. The problem with having slaves for 400 years is they think like slaves. They act like slaves. They react like slaves. Everything in them is, is trained for slavery. He's trying to make a nation out of them. And they're thinking wrong. They're acting wrong. The responses are wrong. So what he does, he gives them the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't just give them the Ten Commandments. If you recall, he gave them 613 laws. The 613 laws, including the Ten Commandments, 613 laws she delivered, include everything any nation will ever need to deal with. Immigration, criminal justice, economics, you name it. And that's how Israel went from being a nation of slaves to being the greatest nation in the ancient world, because God gave them everything, in the, including a big, long health code. He said, this is what your health code's supposed to look like. There's a great book done in 1961 called None of These Diseases, which goes to the health code of the Bible. So we had all sorts of sermons on things like, like um, health care. This is a sermon, character intensity, the property tax is delivered by Reverend Glover. Property tax? Yeah. The Bible talks about estate taxes, inheritance taxes, capital gains taxes, minimum wage, progressive taxes, flat taxes. It talks about all sorts of taxes. Economics comes out of the Bible. The free market system was started in America the last thousand years. All the nations had it. We did it in America in 1627 based on five Bible verses. You'll find them recorded in the writings of the governors that did it. But it's 1 Timothy 5, 8, 2 Thessalonians three ten, Matthew 20, Luke 19, and Matthew 25. It's the basis of the free market system. And people say, oh, we don't want free market. We want socialism. Well, the Bible talks about that as well. And you can see the results of it even in the Bible. But you also see the results of the free market, which is what we chose. And that's why we've been the most prosperous nation over the last two and a half centuries. If you look at sermons, not only economics, this is a sermon on the sinfulness, pernicious nature of gaming, 1751. This is a great awakening sermon done to the legislature of Virginia on what the Bible says about gambling and lotteries. Here is one a sermon, a good law, a Sermon on the Liquor Law of Massachusetts, 1852. Last week, the Massachusetts legislature passed this law on liquor. Let's see what the Bible says. We look at the Bible? Okay. Based on what the Bible says, that is a good law. So we looked at public policy through the lens of the Bible. Did the legislature get it right? Same way with this, injustice and policy of the slave trade. It was the church who led out on this whole concept of fighting slavery. Yes, there were stupid Christians on the other side, but the church itself led in the right direction. You have this also, marriage scripturally considered. On the occasion of the new law of marriage coming to operation, this is New Hampshire, 1837. Legislature did this last week. Where's the Bible say? Okay, that's an acceptable law. Again, we were looking at things through a biblical lens. The higher law, future slave law, a sermon. This is a sermon Fugitive slave law came out in 1850. Hands down, it is the worst federal law ever passed in America's history. No question about it. Fugitive slave law, when it came out, sermons like this came out the next year in 1851. Said, guys, let me read you the fugitive slave law. Read the law. Here's what the federal Congress said. Here's what the Bible says. If you obey the fugitive slave law, you are disobeying the Bible. You have to disobey this law if you're going to obey God. Sermons called for civil disobedience all over the United States. This is what led to the Underground Railroad. It was these sermons that organized the run Underground Railroad because the, now the government is weaponized for slavery against people who, who shouldn't be enslaved because the future is slave. So we went through everything biblically. So we did all sorts of social policy. Here's the cry of Sodom inquired into. This is an early LGBTQIA plus sermon. We dealt with the issue back then. There's nothing new under the sun. Same behavior has always been. Uh, here's a sermon on elections, so we're dealing with voting. And then look at this sermon. This is a sermon from the presidential election of 1800. In that election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson is running for president. Tunis Wartman, the sermon says, there is no way you can vote for Thomas Jefferson. He is terrible. Don't sermon. Don't vote for Thomas Jefferson. There's another sermon, the same election, in which pastor says, you got to vote for Jefferson. This guy is great. Look what he does. And so you've got sermons talking about candidates that cross each other. Well, the issue isn't who they endorse. The issue is the fact that we didn't have any hesitancy about talking about people in office. Either side, we did that. And it's striking because today we're told that we can't do that. We dealt with politics out of the pulpit. We're told we can't, particularly because of the Johnson Amendment. Let me take you back and show you why they did it in old days. The reason we did it in old old days, and I can give you dozens, but I'm just going to give you one. Elijah, after three and a half years of no rain in Israel, it's time for rain to come back. And Elijah goes and confronts the national leaders, Ahab and Jezebel. He said, you know, you guys are the reason we haven't had rain in three and a half years. It's because of what you did with religious persecution. It specifically says that... Um, the chief of staff for King Ahab, Obadiah, was able to save a thousand of the Lord's prophets from Jezebel, who was killing the Lord's prophets everywhere. So, lot of and Elijah jumps them for religious persecution. He then jumps them for their eminent domain policies. You took Naboth's vineyard without due process. You can't take another guy's vineyard. That's private property. Even if you are king, God will curse you for that. And then he talks about how they suborned perjury in the courts. They would send false witnesses in to get the testimony they wanted so they could do what they wanted. And so he specifically calls them out, policy after policy, which is what so many of the prophets did. God sent the prophets to talk to the political leaders. And did they ever call out political leaders, good or bad, either way? So you'll find that that was the basis we had. So we didn't have any hesitancy in doing that in America because we're following the Bible just like they did back then. And so what happens is we're told we can't do this today because of the Johnson Amendment. That was what was passed in 1954 by Lyndon Baines Johnson as a writer on an appropriations bill in the Federal Congress. Since then, the IRS has said, oh, no, no, no. You you churches, you're 501c3, and you can't talk about political stuff little time out here. Planned Parenthood is also 501c3. Are they politically active? Oh, yeah, they are. Unions are 501c3. They're nonprofits. Are are they politically active? Yeah. So how come we're the same thing they are, and we got to be silent? We've tied our hands behind our back and said, hit me in the face. I mean, literally, this is crazy. There is no legal reason. and see. We have been baiting the IRS for more than 10 years with lawsuits trying to get them to go after pastor. We get pastors specifically to do what was done in the founding era. We take that sermon. We send it to the IRS and said, you got to nail this guy. He endorsed in the pulpit, and the IRS has turned down more than 8,000 requests to go after pastor. Why? They know like we know that if we get this in court, we win, hands down. We've had a constitutional lawsuit waiting on four different clauses for a long time. And finally, what happened was President Trump said, you will not enforce that. That is an unconstitutional law. And so they stopped enforcement under President Trump. When Joe Biden came in, he reversed all of Trump's executive orders except that one. He didn't, It's still that way even under President Biden. IRS is not going to enforce that, that provision against churches. Our hands are untied. And we have the history and we have the Bible, but we're still acting like we can't say anything. Now we can't. We, we need to get on the other side. If the other side is going to use their voice to push the wrong worldview, we've got to use ours to push the right worldview. So, again, all of this. So, all of this goes back to why would we do this? Why would we preach such sermons? And the answer really, I think, is based in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. You may know this verse. If you don't, you should memorize it. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And by the way, just that, this is where we get the doctrine that the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. In my opinion, that is the most important doctrine in the Bible, because that says God's Word is true. And if God's Word is not true, then you've got to start picking and choosing which doctrines you're going to have. So you have to start with God's Word is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. Then the next verse tells us why God gave us the Scriptures. Verse 17 says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, and the word every is a really big word. And if you look, we used to believe the Bible did apply to everything, those topics I've showed you. You know, Try, try to find Christians talking to one another on those issues today on our, on our social media, anywhere else. We don't know what the Bible says about all these issues we faced, but we did in previous generations. God's word is inspired for every single aspect of life. So that's why we set our pulpit. That's why John Adams talked about our pulpits of thundered back then. And so how about today? Where are we? Well, every one of these issues that's popping up on the screen, I chose specifically because it has been in the news in the last 24 months. Since the last election, this stuff has been in the news. I chose it because... The Bible addresses every one of those issues that's up there. Every one of them. But today, only 6% of Christians can put a Bible verse to those issues. We have the lowest biblical literacy in polling history. We've been polling in America for 120 years. This is the lowest it has ever been from a Christian standpoint. The American Bible Society does an annual state of the Bible report. Two years ago, we found that 25 million Christians that year stopped reading the Bible, and they no longer even opened the book. Last year, it was another three million. In two years, we've lost 28 million Christians that don't even read the Bible at all. Statistics show that right now, only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis, and only 6% of Christians can apply scriptures to what's going on in the news. We have to individually get back to knowing the Bible, reading and studying the Bible. Don't let people talk you into it's a spiritual book. No, 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 it's a book for economics, it's a book for astronomy, it's a book for everything, education, doesn't matter. It is, excuse me, it is every aspect of life. So 6% of Christians is all that deal with it now, And if you'll see the chart, what's happened in the last 20 years, the people, the percentage of professing Christians in America has dropped 20 points. Uh, We're down now, right now, it's a 62%, and 20 years ago, it was at 82%. So only 62% of Americans profess to be Christians now, and doing polling on that group that left the church, we say, why did you leave the church? And two out of three say, because it lacks relevancy. I don't get anything that applies to what I face in a day-to-day situation in life. That's our problem, because God gave relevancy to the Scriptures. We have to help other people see it and know it and understand it. So what happened? It's a change that we had. Uh, I'll finish with this last, last verse, but the Great Commission, you know what the Great Commission is? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now. What happened was the Great Commission was pretty much reinterpreted in the 60s. If you look at church history, it started in the 20s, but not by the 1960s, we reinterpreted and said, that is a, that's an evangelism mandate. Jesus wants us to go get everybody saved, and he does. He wants us to get everybody saved, but this is not an evangelism mandate. He said, you go make disciples of everyone. You teach them the right way to think in all these areas. And that's what he spent three and a half years doing with his disciples, trying to get them to think right. It's all about discipleship. That's what the Great Commission is about, is discipleship. And significant, when he says everything, just take that verse. He said, teach them everything I've taught you. You know what that would include? That would include right off the bat, Jesus has a teaching in Matthew 19 about no-fault divorce. He also has a teaching that on the definition of marriage. No fault, divorce would trigger a lot of people today Jesus has 15 verses. It triggered Peter. Peter said, Lord, that's really too hard. That's not what Moses Moses allowed us to have a divorce for any reason. Jesus said, it wasn't that way from the Father. So a teaching on that, man, that'd be a hard teaching to give today. But that's what Jesus taught. He said, you teach them everything I've taught you. Definition of marriage out of Luke 19, reward profit makers. This is what we call capital gains. Jesus said, if somebody can make a profit, you need to give them more and more. And if they can't make a profit, you need to take away from them and give it to the one who can make a profit. We do exactly, all. well, you make a profit, we're gonna take more away from you and give it to people who are unproductive. Exactly opposite of what Jesus teaches. That's an economic teaching. By the way, have you noticed how many parables Jesus says? And the kingdom of heaven was like, and then he goes into an economic parable. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. See, this is economic teaching. Matthew 20, he talks about opposition to the minimum wage, that an employee and an employer get to set a contract between themselves, and then talks about the inviability of the contract between the employee and the employer. You have in John 8, the right of legal confrontation. If you're not aware, the right to confront your accuser in the Bill of Rights comes from John 8:10. The right to compel witnesses on your behalf comes from Proverbs 18:17. The right to testify in your own defense comes from Acts 22, 1. Those are things that go back to the Bill of Rights. We don't know them today, but they were there originally. They're still in the Bible. And so this is what we need to do is we need to disciple people, help them know everything they taught us. And then the Bible is relevant to all aspects. It's no longer just a spiritual book. It's an educational book. It's a marriage book. It's a family book. Anything you can think of, it deals with it. That's where we've got to share that with others. So I'll close with this. If it had not been for the role of the church, there would be no America today. It's just that easy. All you got to do is go back to John Adams and what he had in that conversation with Hezekiah and Iles, and you look at the sermons and the other things. The church is the reason we have it today, and if the church is going to back out, then we're not going to have it much longer. This does fall in our hands. A secular philosophy will not provide stability, will not provide prosperity, will not provide freedom. It has to be a biblical philosophy that does that, and that's what we've had for all those years. And by the way, that individually goes to each one of us. If you do not read the Bible daily, I challenge you to do so, but I challenge you to stop reading it as a spiritual book. Read it as a very practical book. See what you can learn in lessons, see what news stories you can apply it to. Just look, stop looking at it as only pertaining to my salvation, my spiritual growth. It has to do with your thinking, that's worldview. If you do not know God's Word, start there. This is what we used to teach in public schools. The first public school law passed in America was to make sure every kid in America could read the Bible. In 1844, we have a unanimous Supreme Court decision, 8-0, that said, if you're going to be a public school, you are going to teach the Bible. We won't have a public school that won't teach the Bible. We don't know that part of our history. It was very common for kids to memorize in first and second grade the entire Gospel of John in first and second grade. We had God's word in our hearts, and I don't have time to show you all the history on it, but let me just challenge you, get back into God's word. And if you do not have that relationship with Jesus, you start there, because you won't understand God's word until he gives you light inside with the Holy Spirit to be able to understand what's there. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer, or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you again soon.